So you might think, well, why on earth did Rich choose that passage on Palm Sunday? Because surely what I should have chosen is Matthew chapter 21, which in the NIV is entitled The Triumphal Entry. Where we get the description of Jesus arriving in Jerusalem. But I've opted for the bit just before that. Which is where Jesus, yet again, because he does it repeatedly, Jesus tells the disciples, this is what's going to happen. We're going to go to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will turn him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. And on the third day, he will be raised to life. It's hard for us to imagine what that message would have actually been like. Because, because we know at Easter Sunday, we, the reason that we're Christians, the reason that we come to church, is not because of the triumphal entry. We don't, it doesn't stop there. We didn't go, ah, oh, Jesus rode in on a donkey and everyone waved palm branches and sang Hosanna. Wasn't that great? And that's who we celebrate. It's what happened during the next few days. So these 12 disciples, they, by this point, in their time with Jesus, they've been through a lot. First of all, as we've looked at, they were called by Jesus. They were doing their own different jobs. They, they were, some of them were fishermen, we've got tax collectors. Some of them we don't actually know what they were doing. It doesn't say what their particular job was. But they wouldn't have been somebody else's disciple. They would have been doing a job of some description, just as many of us have jobs or roles of some description, and we're not, we'll just go through life and we weren't worried about following anybody else. And then Jesus comes along and says, okay, I want you to follow me. And there have been various reasons why they would have put down their nets or stopped being a tax collector and gone, yes, I want to follow Jesus. So for some of them, because they will have been kind of the nobodies. The people in society that everybody else ignored. I, I don't know if you remember back to when we looked at the calling of the disciples. The way that it would have worked is children growing up will have been... They'd have had to go to the equivalent of school and you have to learn the first five books of what we know as the Bible. And they studied it and they have to know it off by heart and then they get tested on it. And if they were good enough, they got to carry on. And if they didn't know it well enough, they went back and did whatever the family trade was. And then the people that kind of the children that got through that, they then learned more of the scriptures, and then they were tested on it. And if they were good enough, they got to keep doing it. If they got tested on it, weren't good enough, you go back to the trade that you were doing beforehand. And so it was only the the brightest, the, or at least the people that were really good at studying scriptures. And remembering what they said and repeating it back. But actually got to be somebody's disciple. So when Jesus says, I want to call you as a disciple. He's saying, I think you are a somebody. Instead of a nobody. Which would have been a hugely powerful message. Well, of course, people dropped their nets and followed him. And there would have been certain hope that they had. And as the, the time with Jesus went on. And they heard his teaching and they thought, this is incredible. He's teaching something that is different. 
He speaks with authority. He speaks as one who seems just completely different from everybody else. This is amazing. And they'll have seen the crowds coming. They'll have experienced the fact that as they went from town to town, more and more people will have come. They had, we know that it talks about 5,000 men being fed by Jesus. So we know that at least on one occasion, there were at least 5,000 people there. And the scholars who have gone back and studied the scriptures and said, well, it only says 5,000 men because they wouldn't have counted the women and children, but there were probably women and children there as well. Actually, the crowd could have been bigger. We don't know that, so we'll stick with 5,000, which is still a pretty good crowd if you ask me. Especially, as it says, he went from village to village. And 5,000 in a village is pretty good going. So you get the impression that everybody's poured out. I love the idea, or it terrifies me at the same time because I'm doing the talk on Friday, that the entire town of Usley, that everybody pours out suddenly to come and hear me speak on Friday morning. Now, aside from the practical issues of you wouldn't all be able to hear and you wouldn't be able to get there and the streets would block the way and all that sort of thing, and we, aside from that, there's a bit of me that would be excited because I'd suddenly go, oh my goodness, wow, look at the crowd, they're all excited about Jesus. And there's another bit of me that would be terrified because I go, what a responsibility I now have. But they would have been excited. And they, the disciples, they've, been with, they've seen the miracles that we read about and more. Some of the people that would have experienced Jesus, they would have seen maybe one or two. Because Jesus moved around, it didn't have the entire crowd building up as he went around Jerusalem going, well, have you picked up a few here and then we've got more and we've got more? People went back after they experienced Jesus in their own town. They might have followed him a bit, but they had to go back and live their daily lives. And they had to be fishermen and tax collectors and whatever else it was. They would have experienced him as he came to their town. But the disciples travelled around with Jesus. They've had about three years of this building, of getting to know him, of witnessing the miracles. They have had teaching that nobody else got. They got the teaching when they got to go, okay, Jesus, you said that parable, but we don't get it. Could you explain it to us? And Jesus said, how do you not get it? It's really simple. Like, okay, I'll explain it to you. And then he'd explain it kindly to them. And so they had all of that. They had all that additional knowledge. And so when it comes to this moment, when Jesus is about to come into Jerusalem, it won't have been a huge surprise that suddenly there's people waving palm branches because they would have experienced the excitement in other towns and villages at different times where people have rushed out and tried to gather and they tried to see him. We've got the woman who tried to touch his cloak and got healed because she did touch his cloak. They've experienced that. That's become the norm. And it's been building and building and building. The excitement will have been incredible. And so it comes to this particular day, this day that we know as Palm Sunday. And the other thing that they will be aware of is the teaching that they will have had in the equivalent of their Sunday school, when they were going to the synagogue, when they were learning as children and as adults what the scriptures said. And the scriptures prophesied about the coming Messiah. And it said, one day... God will send the Messiah and he will be a saviour for all Jerusalem. 
And the way that they interpreted that, which is understandable if you put yourself in their shoes, was as a nation, they had been conquered, they'd been taken over. Instead of being the great time that they had when King David uh, was the king, and, and they seemed to rule over everybody uh, else, and they conquered everybody else, and life was wonderful, and being Jewish was wonderful, and it was a fantastic time because it was, they had the land flowing with milk and honey. <coughs> they heard the stories of those days. And they thought, one day, when this Messiah comes, he's going to come and we're going, to have, we're going to have that experience again. It's going to be just like that. And, and the Romans who are living in Jerusalem now, and, and they're doing things there where we have to live over, under their law, what's going to happen is things are going to be different. They're going to be kicked out. Suddenly, we're going to have our own king again that's not like Herod, but our own proper king. This Messiah, he's going to be, it's going to be fantastic. And even the disciples will have had their own views about that. And having read a little bit about the different disciples, one of the things, uh, one of the, the understandings of Judas, we hear about Judas Iscariot. And uh, one of the things that's understood about him is that actually he was probably part of a group of people that had been hoping for a change. Not necessarily in the form of a coming Messiah, but in a hope, perhaps in a political figure. Perhaps there's going to be, in a kind of, there's going to be a revolution. Things are going to be different. And this Jesus comes along, and he seems to be the guy that's going to lead it. So, so you kind of go with Judas, well, he's gone and joined this group of disciples because Jesus invites him. But he's hoping, he's got this hope that things are going to be different because finally the Romans are going to be kicked out. Everybody else is going to be kicked out. The temple is going to be back to being as it should be. We're going to have somebody on the throne ruling over and it's going to be like the time of King David all over again. And we can see that within our own society. There are people uh, that hope um, that we'll have a political leader that comes along and that will change things and stir things up. Last year with the general election, there was a sense of some people hoped that UKIP, for example, they were going to be the ones that came in and it was going to be different and they seemed to have this momentum behind them. When it came to it, it didn't work out as people anticipated. Some people hope that Jeremy Corbyn <coughs> is going to be the saviour of the Labour Party and he's going to save our nation. Other people think completely the opposite of that. You might have your own views. But if someone like Judas was one of the disciples of They've got their hope built up for this moment. Despite being told, and if you read through the Gospels, you read that Jesus tells the disciples on a number of occasions, this is what's going to happen. The Son of Man has to die. He will be handed over. He will be tried. But three days later, he will rise again. Now, if you're one of the disciples, hearing that, 
if you're a bit like me, I suspect what you hear is the negative bit. Because you, you hear that bit where you go, could be betrayed and handed over. No. No, that won't happen. Surely not. No, everybody loves you, Jesus. Look at the crowds we get when you when you preach in places. We can't even we tried to go away on that boat and we sailed to, to the other side of the lake, but people travelled around and still caught up with us there. They won't betray you, of course they won't. But we also know, if we look at our own society today, that whilst people love politicians or celebrities or whoever it is one minute, very quickly, just because they make one particular comment or they speak up about something, suddenly the Titans, and they're the most hated figure in all of society. And we went, no, I never followed them, I never supported them, no, no, everybody else did, but I wasn't, no, 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 they're awful, I always thought they were awful. And we choose sides. And I wonder, as I've read through the passage, I wonder how many times actually Jesus tries to share a message with us. He tells us a message, he says something to us. And we hear one part of it. We hear perhaps the part that we want to hear. We go, well that bit's nice, I like that bit. I like that bit. Yeah, I'll follow Jesus and I'll have eternal life and salvation and, and all those things. Oh, there's some responsibilities that go with that. Oh. Well, I'm not sure about those. Others of us might hear something around the fact that it talks about in James um, that faith without works is dead. And so we go, oh, therefore we've got to do things. And we, I like doing things. Doing things shows that I'm what my faith is about. And I'm a doer. I like doing things. I don't like just sitting around and not doing things. So we end up doing lots. And Jesus perhaps says to us, I just want you to chill out. I want you to stop and spend some time with me. We're going, yeah, but there's stuff to do. There's all those other things that need doing. We know that the things need doing. There'll always be things that need doing. But I just need to stop and rest and be with Jesus. And some of us perhaps hear the message of, actually, you need to start doing something. And you go, no, but like I've, read, I've, heard, I've heard about Mary and Martha and how Jesus praised the one who stopped and sat on the floor. I'll be like her. I need to, I'm like her, that's what I'm like. And actually we use that as an excuse for they're not doing something. Because we use the bits of the Bible, we use the things we hear for our own benefit. It's what happens. We all do it. Perhaps we, we think, oh, I hear the message about loving the Lord our God with all our heart, soul and mind, that bit's fine. Love our neighbour as ourselves. Well that's fine, so long as it's the neighbours that I love. And so long as I can love them in the way that I feel comfortable with. And so long as I can love them just a little bit, not too much. Because actually I've got things to do. And there's too many people and, and I've got my own issues. So I can't love them because, well I'll do a bit, you know, we'll be nice to them. I'll be polite. But what, you want me to actually lay down my life for other people? Well that's fine, so long as I can still attend church on a Sunday morning when we have church at 10.30. If we've got to change that, then... No, no, I can't. I can't, I can't lay my, down my life to somebody else then. Oh, but... As long as I don't have to give financially to somebody else, because I can't really afford to, because I've got to pay the bills and the mortgage, and there's, there's, I need some new clothes. I don't mind loving somebody else, so long as 
I don't know what your hopes and expectations were when you said, Rich, we'd like to invite you to be the minister in training of Usley Baptist Church. And whether you, those of you that were here, went, Phew, we've got somebody, we won't be an interregnum anymore. Because I've been in churches that have been in interregnum, the bit where you haven't got a minister, and you kind of go, we just need somebody. But, but we want to get the right person. And then they arrive, and it's really exciting. You go, oh, we've got all sorts of hope in a particular individual. I don't know if you had that for me. You might have thought, well, he'll do. Um, seems all right. He's got a nice family. We'll have him for the family, and we'll put up with him. I don't know, thankfully. Um, I think you like and I don't know, over the last, however long it's been, 18, 19, 20 months, whether I've met some of those expectations, whether I've disappointed in other areas, whether you're still hopeful that, no, Rich is still, he's going to save the church, and we're going we're gonna to grow, and there's going to be revival, and we're going to have to have, oh, 10 services on a Sunday, because we won't be able to pack everybody in, and we'll put speakers outside so the people in the street can hear as well. And in fact, it's going to be such a big revival, uh, because Rich is really wonderful, uh, and so we're going to actually, we're going we're gonna to move into a big warehouse down the road. We're going to push out um, what they call John, what's Jeff? We're going to push them out, because we need their warehouse to fill it up with all the people that we've got coming to our church. And isn't it going to be fantastic? And you're going, yes, that's the hope. And actually, we've still got kind of a similar number of people coming. We go, well, I'm hopeful. It, it, it's going to change. It's just around the corner. We've just, we just got to tweak a few things. And then, it'll turn. I don't know if you're thinking, oh, once, do you know what? Once we, if we decorate in the church, that will help. That will get the people in. Because actually... You know, there's a few scuff marks now. It's been, it's been this green colour for a little while, and it's time for something fresh. But once we have fresh, then the people will come. I don't know. I, did you ever have pews in here? I don't know. I've not. No, there's always been chairs. In other churches I've been in, I know there's been that feeling of, if only we had comfortable seats. We'll get rid of the pews. In fact, somebody once said to me, I went, I was at a church for a celebration um, event. Uh, it was for my granddad. My granddad was a bishop, um, and uh, it had been something like 50 years since he'd become a vicar, and 21 years of being a bishop, or something like that. And so there was a celebration <coughs> service, and so all the family went, whether they normally went to church or not. And a member of my family, who was sat next to me, said, uh, these, "These seats are comfortable. I might even think about coming to church if I knew they had comfortable seats." And I turned to them and said. Really? That's the thing? And they stopped for a minute and went, no, actually, no. No, actually, that's probably not the thing that's going to get me to come to church. I mean, it's nice to have comfortable chairs, don't get me wrong. But the, the reason people would come is not because we've got comfy seats. Because you know what? We've got comfy seats at home. There's comfy seats in Costa. There's comfy seats if you go upstairs in Tesco and just want to sit down. There's comfy seats in places. That's not going to be what causes revival. I am not going to be what causes revival. Our hope needs to be in Jesus. And Jesus' message isn't the same as the message of the world. Because what Jesus' message is, is the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests 
and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and they will turn him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. I don't know if you ever wonder what it would be like if Jesus hadn't come 2,000 odd years ago but instead came now. I wondered when uh, I was when I was turning 30, I had that, oh, I wonder if, like, I'm the age that, Je- about that Jesus was when he started his ministry. Ooh, three years, that, that three years has now passed, and I look back on it and go, well, Jesus achieved a lot between 30 and 33. I don't feel I got quite as much done. But what would it have been like if Jesus came? What would be the message that he would share, not just to the church, but to the world outside of the church? Where would he have been born? Because it probably wouldn't have been a stable in Bethlehem. It would have been, I don't know, the bike shelters round the back of the school or something. It would have been, or maybe he'd have gone to the travel lodge or the Premier Inn and they'd have said, no, sorry, we're fully booked, and he'd have gone to the B&B and then they wouldn't have had anywhere and he'd eventually have ended up. Maybe he'd have knocked on the door of the church and wouldn't have got in because it was locked because we weren't open at that time. I, I don't know. And then his message to the church, we'd have found it really uncomfortable because the people that found Jesus' message uncomfortable were the people that should have known better. They were, it was the people that had studied the scriptures. It was the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the chief priests. They, and Jesus says to them when, when he says, well, why do you eat? Why are you going to go and eat with them? Those, those dirty tax collector people. And Jesus says, well, it's not the doctors that need me. The doctors, the health, what is it? The doctors, it's the unhealthy. You know what I'm saying. The sick that need a doctor. That's the one. Thank you. Glad you're here. The sick need a doctor. And so what he was actually saying to them is, I don't need to come to you because you should know this. You, you know the scriptures. You know what should be going on. I'm going to go to the others. And we go, wait a minute. Hang on, no, we want you to come to our church. You should be encouraging us and supporting us and being with us. What are you doing going over there? And he'd have said, yeah, I want you to come out. And we'd go, ooh, I don't know about that. Don't mind, so long as we've got a programme organised. We don't mind organising Alpha or Christianity Explored or something. And we might go out a little bit and invite some people in. But out, what, forever? sure about that. That sounds a bit strange to me. And we'd have got upset with him. And I, I was trying to think, where would Jesus have been, where would Jesus have been handed over to uh, and been betrayed to? And actually, we don't have the death penalty in this country. So we, we wouldn't have been able to go, oh, we'll hand him over to whoever. And I thought, actually, this is no slate on America, as I use this as an example. Actually, I can imagine in the evangelical, Bible Belt, biggest church attending area of America, and possibly as Christians, we'd all be cheering, because it wouldn't have fulfilled our hopes and expectations, and we would have been those that today would be going, yes, we love Jesus, he's going to be the president or the prime minister, and he's going to change the world, and he's going to be great, and it wouldn't work as we wanted to. And we'd go, I suspect I would either be silent in the days that follow, or I'd get caught up in the next crowd that said, crucify him. 
He hasn't met my expectation. No, we're going we're gonna to take him down. And we'd have deported him off to the States. And we'd there'd have been a, an injection or an electric chair or the equivalent. And we'd have said, you know, set someone free because they've been on death row a long time and maybe they've served their time. So we'll set them free. And someone like Judas, who had all this expectation, this hope beyond hope, that had built up, that was coming, it was going to happen. This day, this Palm Sunday, as people are waving, this was the moment. He knew that the scriptures said he would come riding into Jerusalem on a colt, on a donkey. These prophecies were unfolding before his very eyes. He knew what he'd been taught. He knew what he thought was supposed to happen next and he was going to be see Jesus put on the throne and the Romans kicked out and suddenly Jerusalem would be great again Israel would be a great nation once again and it doesn't happen Jesus walks into the temple and he overturns the tables and he kicks out the money changers and he upsets the apple cart and I can kind of see Judas in that moment going, that's not what was supposed to happen. I've given my life to following this man and he's now let me down. Because he missed it. He missed the fact that it was about something bigger than Jerusalem. It was bigger than Israel. It was bigger than Usley Baptist Church. Or Usley. Or London or the UK, it was much bigger than any of the things that we might hope or imagine. It's bigger than whether we decide to run a Bible study or not. Or we start Messy Church up again in September or not. Or whether Girls Brigade and Boys Brigade have to merge at some point because we've just got to do that to get the leaders sorted out. Or not. It's bigger than all those things. Jesus was saying, no, this is God's saving grace. This is his plan for all eternity, for all people. And it's not about you in this moment dealing with just getting over whatever little hurdle you've got in your life. This is about God's kingdom forever and his reign being forever. And we know, this is the joyous bit for us, we know that the waving of palm branches and the, the expectation of many there, they missed the point. They missed it. And they saw this man. And they thought, we're going to have a new king. But they thought it was an earthly thing. And they thought it was going to sort all their problems out on earth in that moment. And that's not what it's about. We know that the disciples met together on that evening and gathered for the Passover. And they were there and they were enjoying themselves. It's a family meal. It was a time of remembering that God had saved the Israelites. He brought them out of Egypt. They were remembering this great celebration that God had saved them. And so they're there, it's a happy time. And in the midst of that, we know that Jesus said, actually, 
I've got to tell you again, I've told you a number of times and you still haven't caught up. And he breaks bread and pours wine and they're sharing it, he's saying this, and they're sitting there going, what are you talking about? And he says, Peter, you're going you're gonna to deny me. No, I'd never do that. What are you talking about? Because one of you is going to betray me. And they all go, what? No. Oh, we've been together. We're a, we're a good, we're a group. We're in this together. We're in this for the long haul. We'll never. Oh. We know what happened next. And we also know what happened on Easter Sunday. And they don't get a king that's going to reign over Jerusalem and Israel. They get much more than they bargained for. Much, much, much more than they bargained for. And we get that whole story. Which, and most of us here, I think, if not all of us, would say we know Jesus is our Lord and Saviour. We've met with the risen Jesus. And so the waving of palm branches we do because we know what happens next. But sometimes I think we need reminding because actually we live our lives as though we're still hoping for someone that's going to come and fix the moment now. That's going to turn our education system around and turn the NHS around and turn the political system around and turn our financial situation around at home. It's going to turn our health needs around. It's going to turn our loneliness around. And yes, God has the potential to do all those things. But I wonder if we are hoping and still relying on a saviour for, for ourselves in this moment or whether we remember that first time we met with Jesus and we realise that he was so much more. And it wasn't about those individualistic little things. It was about God, the creator, the maker of heaven and earth, saying, I want a relationship with you. And I'm willing to lay down my life for you. Will you lay down your life for me and for others? And so rather than having that selfish desire of, I just want this bit in my life to be sorted out, we go, God, what's your bigger picture and your bigger plan in this place? How can I introduce people to Jesus and be a witness for you in the lives of others so that you are able to transform people through me? Because on the third day, he will be raised to life. And we can sing. Hallelujah. Hosanna. Glory in the highest. But sometimes we need to hear that harder truth. That sometimes there's death before there's life. There's a laying down before a raising up. 